We moved to Nashville just over 11 years ago. And when we first moved, people would always ask me, why'd you move to Nashville? And I would always give them the exact same answer. I'd tell them I was bored on Monday nights, and if I lived in Nashville, I could go see the time jumpers at the Station Inn every Monday night. Some people would laugh, others would look a little bit confused, but there would always be somebody who knew exactly what I was talking about. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Andy Reese. Andy is a guitar player who has played on thousands of sessions, and you can find out everything you need to know about Andy at thetimejumpers.com. Andy's one of my favorite people. He's a super soulful cat who cares about things that actually matter in life. He's very knowledgeable about music and a lot of other things, and he's generous with his knowledge and wisdom. I love sitting around the poker table and just hearing him tell stories about Nashville and music in general. One of the stories I've heard him tell a couple times was about how he moved to Nashville in his first session. He got to play with the great Slim Pickens. That always stuck in my head, so I asked Andy if he'd be nice enough to tell that story on this show. We sat down in his kitchen here in Nashville, and he shared the story. I think you guys will enjoy this. Here's Andy Reese. My brother and I listened to the radio voraciously, and we loved everything, uh, and then we found these radio stations that played this weird kind of music called country music. And to us, it was just bizarre. We had no no foundation for understanding it. And we thought it was ridiculous and funny. And then after listening to it for a couple of weeks, we thought it was really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> the transformation was, was really funny. And actually, we heard it a lot because we used to listen to Top 40 radio and back in the day, they played country songs, you know. So I remember distinctly uh, End of the World by Skeeter Davis. And um, then we started hearing Buck Owens and Merle Haggard because that's what they played out in California. And all of a sudden, we realized that it was like the greatest music of all. Although I still loved jazz and I loved soul music and was listening to a lot of that. And then I became a blues nerd, so that really took me over. But I, but the country thing was kind of going on simultaneously to my loving all that music to the extent that my brother and I took a Greyhound bus 
up to Sacramento. This was a big deal to the state fair to see Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. And uh, playing drums was Willie Cantu, who later became my roommate and my friend. But little did I think that, you know, one day that would happen. We met uh, Tiny Moore, the great mandolinist who played with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys at the fair, and he was just the nicest guy. And Tiny Moore was amazed to find young people who were into his kind of music, which we were obviously pretty into it by that point. So then when uh, my brother picked up pedal steel and another friend of mine, Joe Goldmark, picked up pedal steel, and I was playing with them and just playing little country jams or something and realized that there was a whole scene of country music in the Bay Area. In the South Bay, there was probably 12 or 15 nightclubs that had country music six, seven nights a week. But Bob Wills used to play there a lot. There was actually a big history of country music in the Bay Area, not in San Francisco particularly, but around it, San Jose, San Leandro, San Anselmo, all those kind of places. There was a really big scene. You could make a good living playing country music, so that's what I did. So, so I, I was doing that, and, and I met I met a lot of people there. And the people I met who really influenced me were uh, Larry and Bobby Black, who were uh, brother Steel and lead guitar team, who had lived in Nashville for a while, but they were superstars down there. They had a recording studio, and were just wonderful musicians and wonderful people, really humble and giving, and and they saw something in me and. Uh, you know, welcomed me with open arms. And my first country recording session was in, in the Bay Area doing some demos that Larry was producing. And I played acoustic guitar and he played electric guitar. And I'd listened to enough that I understood the role of the acoustic guitar. And he handed me number charts, which I had never seen before. For people that don't know, maybe you can explain what a number chart is. A number chart is a, a musical shorthand that replaces the names of chords with a numerical equivalent that's based on a major scale. So in the key of C, a C would be 1, a D would be 2, an E would be 3, and so on. And then if you had to change keys and you were suddenly in B because the singer couldn't hit the notes, then a B would be 1, a C sharp would be 2, a D sharp would be 3, and so on. So it translates to all the keys. Uh, it's a great musical shorthand, and one really nice thing about it is, I think besides being able to change keys so easily, you really see the harmonic layout of a song in front of you, which you don't if it's just chords. It takes a while to, to figure it out. Uh, I looked at the chart and I said, oh, this makes perfect sense. Well, I married a Southern girl, and I think everybody reaches a point in the music business where you have to decide where you want to be. And San Francisco was a professional music town in the sense of playing in a club five nights a week, which is obviously leading nowhere, or the rock and roll scene was really big. And I messed with that a little bit, but I'm just not a rocker at heart. And it wasn't as professional a scene in my mind as I wanted to see. 
And certainly a lot of people made great livings and made great music doing it there, but I just didn't see that as a way for me. So at that point, you think it's L.A., it's New York, or it's Nashville. L.A. would make sense because it was close and I'd spend a little time there. New York, I guess, made a little sense because I was born there. But Nashville just seemed friendlier. I was married to a Southern girl, and I had a few contacts in Nashville. So we decided on Nashville, packed it up, moved on in. And um, Larry and Bobby were, were close friends with a record producer in Nashville named Pete Drake, who was also a preeminent steel player of his day, a really wonderful musician. And he said, go down and talk to Pete. So I went down and talked to Pete, went down to the studio. I called him up, and he said, come on down to the studio tonight, late, like 9 o'clock. So I went down there, and he's just hanging out, a bunch of people, you know, telling stories, smoking cigarettes, going through tapes, whatever. And it was, it was just a nice hang. What studio was it? Peach Place on 18th Avenue. He had his own studio, which was a really nice studio. Big MCI board. and. Were you aware of who Pete Drake oh, was? Oh, yes, very much so. He's a huge figure. He's a huge figure. Because I was, well, my dad owned a record store, so I, I would read all the liner notes. So I knew the names of all the guys, you know. And it's kind of funny because they'd always list five guitar players. Harold Bradley, Jimmy Capps, you know, Hank Garland, uh, Grady Martin, Ray Edenton. They, they, they'd list all these guys. So I knew who they were, but I didn't know specifically what they would play. And it turns out they mostly had pretty specific roles. So anyway, the evening with Pete goes great. We're just hanging out, and he says, come back tomorrow. So I came back tomorrow, and it just became a nightly thing, like, five, six nights a week, go down and hang out at the studio, sometimes till four or five in the morning. And then he said, uh, after a couple of weeks, uh, I've got a session coming in tomorrow at two. I'm down to hang out, just be really quiet, but mingle a little bit, just just watch it and see what, what's going on. And I, you know, I was, I was doing really well in California and I thought I was a badass, you know. <laughs> And, and particularly, some of my friends would joke about people playing acoustic guitar on country records, like, who the hell couldn't do that, you know? <laughs> and I definitely felt that. I, I felt that way, which was really stupid. So I went to the session, and I believe it was a Stonewall Jackson session. And he had, I don't remember everybody who was on it, but he had Jimmy Capps and Ray Edenton playing tandem acoustic guitar or playing at the same time. And I watched them play, and I was like, holy shit, I have no idea how to do what they're doing. They were so good and just nailed it so well. I just could not believe my eyes. So that was that was stunning. For the people that don't know, uh, Jimmy Capps uh, played guitar on The Gambler. Yeah, both oh, those guys did, actually. Both. A lot of huge hits, yeah, and uh, as a, a very well respected and well decorated guitar player, and, and still actually re really popular and working a lot today. He's on the TV show Larry's Country Diner. I watch it religiously, and um, all those country family reunion shows, and still doing a lot of sessions. He's just a wonderful guitarist and a wonderful man. All those guys were really friendly to me, with a couple of exceptions. 
<laughs> in fact, that, that, we'll get to that. Yeah, it's a good story. My my friend Hoyt Henry, who was also a friend of Larry and uh, Bobby, and he opened his house to me when I first moved to town. Stayed with him, and he was just a wonderful guy. He had a lot of wonderful stories. Uh, Don Henry is his son. So anyway, Hoyt introduced me to a guy who was a big deal, mostly acoustic player in town at that point in time. We'll leave him unnamed. And he said, uh, hey, this is Andy. He's just moved to town. He wants to get into sessions. Maybe you can help him out. He shook my hand. He looked me in the eye, and he said, Andy, I'll tell you how it is. You're my competition. Why should I help you? And he pretty much lived up to that. And I thought, how could, how could he be? How could I be his competition? Because he was playing on a lot of big records at that point. And it wasn't long before I was competing with him for twenty-five dollars song session. So <laughs> I realized it's not all great glamour, you know. But anyway, well, that- J- Jimmy and Ray were really nice to me, and Charlie McCoy was another contact I had. All those guys were just princes. With a couple of exceptions. One was uh, during a break in the studio, I went in to look at Bob Moore's bass. And he came in and saw me looking at his gear, and he, like, roared. He went, <laughs> Oh, Mr. Moore, I'm so nervous. <laughs> and Bob and I, it wasn't long after that, we became friends. And Bob and I are very good friends now. And he just saw some young guy there. I wouldn't have dreamed of touching him. But he had an old uh, Fiesta Red jazz bass that he didn't have a case for. And since he was primarily an upright player, he really kind of hated electric. So he would just, like, drag it along behind him, literally, on the sidewalk. And it had virtually no finish left. It was so beat up. It was really beautiful. The people listening to this should know Bob Moore has played on half their record collection. Yes. Bob Moore played on every record. Uh, King of the Road is a notable example. Uh, All the Patsy Cline stuff. Uh, all those great Ray Price shuffles. He played on uh, Fair and Young records for probably about half of those great shuffles. What was him? He played on uh, every record. He was the bass player in Nashville. Yeah, all, all, all these guys were, were what they called the A-team. They were the guys who played on every record. They were amazingly talented, versatile musicians. They were gods to me. And watching them play was just incredible. And it was it was such a blessing to have a class like that, you know. People called it the Drake School of Music. They're just letting people hang out and watch, and it really was. Because if I hadn't had that opportunity, I probably would have learned what recording sessions were like from doing all the really shitty ones I ended up doing, you know. But I got to see the, the masters at work and learn what it was really like. And that was an incredible gift. Was there a code of conduct, like an unspoken code of how you behave yourself when you're hanging out? Oh, yeah. Just be fly on the wall, pretty much. It was, it was good. It was okay to, to, to mingle with people and, and meet them and talk to them, but it was not good to say, you know, hey, I'm a guitar player. You ought to use me, you know, <laughs> all, all that kind of stuff. It was totally not, not cool. Want to hand them a demo or anything? No, nothing. <laughs> Definitely not. 
Definitely not. The Nashville handshake. The Nashville handshake doesn't apply in the real world. <laughs> or the big, big time world. I don't know what you want to call it. The 18 world. And those guys were beyond jaded and but, but still were wonderful creative musicians. Well, after hanging out there and watching maybe 20, 25 sessions go down, Pete said, um, I've got to finish up this album I've been working on, and uh, why don't you come in and play acoustic guitar on this session? Yes, sir. Put me in goats. Yeah. <laughs> I was so excited. Uh, it was unbelievable. Uh, another guy, another guitar player who was involved in the Drake School of Music was, was the great Bill Hullett. He was a good friend of mine. and He had Bill and I play rhythm guitar like Ray and Jimmy would do. And, and I'm looking around, and the cast is just it's everybody. Bob Moore was playing bass. Jerry Kerrigan was playing drums. Pig Robbins. Pete's playing steel. Pete Wade playing guitar, who's an absolute Zen master of guitar playing, who nobody knows about, but he's an incredible musician. And Charlie McCoy was on it, and the Jordanaires were on it. I mean, it's like the best of the best. That's the people who invented the number system. Right. Yeah, Charlie McCoy and the Jordanaires, absolutely. And me. <laughs> <laughs> And he had the acoustic guitars. Bill and I were had our backs to, to one wall, and everybody else is kind of lined up on the other wall, so they're all looking at us. And I I could not have felt more conspicuous. So Pete says, we're going to play uh, America, the, America the Beautiful. And I wanted to start with a, a rolling acoustic guitar, which refers to like a finger-picking. And then the artist comes in, and the artist was Slim Pickens. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Slim Pickens is a legend in his own right. An absolute legend, an, an icon of a whole nother universe. Did you have any idea before he walked in that it was going to be Slim Pickens? I really didn't. I really didn't. <laughs> and Slim Pickens walks in. I'm like, what the hell? Could not believe it. And so he basically recited America, the, the, the beautiful, oh, beautiful, or spacious skies. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of trying not to laugh and totally intimidated. Pete Way was giving me the evil eye. Bob Morris was my pal by then, so he was cool. Pete Drake was, you know, kind of letting his chicks fly, so he, he, wasn't, he wasn't trying to be totally uninvolved, you know. So he wasn't being helpful. Charlie McCoy, I talked to before that, so he was being really nice. You had to be terrified, though. I was absolutely just shitting my pants the whole way. Did you have any interactions with Slim Pickens at all? I don't recall that. I was so scared. Yeah. The idea of actually talking to him was. <laughs> Did he hang at all? Yeah, afterwards? he hung a little bit. And he, he he was very friendly. He was Slim Pickens. For the people that don't know who Slim Pickens was, Slim Pickens was quite the character. There's a little thing I pulled off of the internet, a little blurb, that says Slim Pickens was a rancher, a cowboy, a bronc rider. He was actually a rodeo clown. 
And he was a side-splitting portrayer of sidekicks, hayseeds, yahoos, <laughs> bumpkins, good old boys, and dispensers of down-home wisdom. And he was in a bunch of different uh, movies and TV shows. He was in uh, Dr. Strangelove. He rode the bomb. He's the guy riding the H-bomb into Russia with the cowboy hat waving. And uh, Stagecoach. And um, what else was he in? Blazing Saddles. He was the main bad guy in Blazing Saddles. I can just imagine when that guy walks in the room for the recording session. It's just... It's a complete warp in the continuum, you know. This can't be happening. What is he doing here? That occurred in 1980, I believe. It might have been 81. I mean, it certainly cemented my idea that that was what I wanted to do. And, well, I never really made it into the, the A-team, and there's a number of reasons for that, one being ability, I guess, you know. Um I, I played on, I have played on probably thousands of records over the years. And, and the contacts I made there were invaluable. Uh, and I remember the song was in A, and I played an open A position, and Bill Capo on the second fret played G. So I actually had the harder part. <laughs> and I didn't flub it. It came off okay. And I felt really proud at the end of the day. I appreciate you inviting me over here. It's nice to be here when we're not playing poker. Yeah. <laughs> not that poker's bad. Poker's good. Yeah. You going to come tomorrow night? I'll be here tomorrow night. Good. <laughs> I'll be here to lose money. Well, I lost big time last night. <laughs> I won $9 last time. I lost eight fifty. so you got my $9. <laughs> we're, we're big time poker players. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Andy for sitting down with me at his kitchen here in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Andy at thetimejumpers.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.